I think in general, it, people, if they can um, be more careful in the way that they simulate across trajectories and just have that knowledge that um, it's not human nature to think through the full trajectory. And so if you really force yourself, like you nudge yourself, hey, what about the end of that experience? What's that going to be like? Um, I think that could just be sort of a wise thing for people to do in their daily lives because they're thinking more about the beginning of experiences than they are about the end of experiences. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Program Life Podcast where we want our listeners, guests, and myself to learn something new. Every week, I bring in a guest who has a passion for topics related to productivity or mental health. And our guest on this episode today is Juliana, who is an assistant professor at the UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and a behavioral scientist who studies the psychological processes by which people think about the minds of other people. In this episode, me and Juliana discuss about various topics such as productivity and efficacy, social interactions and relationships, and also a glimpse into the future and AI and how it will affect our experience of power and decision making. So real quick, before this episode starts, if you're new here, I upload every week on Thursday morning EST, as well as put out extra content on my blog, such as my email newsletter and my key takeaways for each episode of the podcast. So if you want these goodies, just head over to my website, which is programlife.org. Also, it would be great if you could head over and click that subscribe or follow button right now on whichever platform you're using to listen to this. It only just takes a second and you can be notified on all the great content that I provide you guys. And also, please just leave me a rating and review just telling me what you liked about this episode. It helps me a bunch and it only just takes a few seconds. So you can also follow me on Instagram, yogishprabhu2, and my Twitter, yogishprabhu03, which is Y-O-G-E-S-H-P-R-A-B-H-U. So that's enough plug-in for me, and sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, so um, Juliana, I'm really excited to have you on the show as you are an assistant professor at the UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and a behavioral scientist who studies the psychological processes of by which people think about the minds of other people. And you've done loads of research over the past few years, and a lot of them were really interesting to read up on as well. So this episode will actually be covering over various topics such as productivity and efficacy and social interactions and relationships, and also a glimpse into the future and how AI um, can affect our experience of power and decision-making. So before I get into these questions that I have for you today, I would like to first thank you for coming on to this show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So um, I saw some of your uh, most recent research papers and one that caught my eye is like the one about efficacy, which is uh, which I mentioned about um, earlier in the intro and how people prefer to complete tasks in an increasing difficulty order. Can you give us just a sprinkle of some of that research you've done and also provide some color around some some of the things you've applied that research to? 
Um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, basically, this is a part of a broader kind of project thinking about momentum. Um, it was led by a former PhD student um, in our group, Rachel Habert, um, who's now um, working at a leadership consulting company, um, kind of studying momentum in the field. And the finding um, of that particular paper that you mentioned was we looked at different um task difficulty levels. So every day we have to think about how to order, you know, all the different tasks kind of that we have throughout the day, and they're going to vary in terms of how difficult they are. And um, we ask people about their preference and what they think will sort of motivate them um, to be um, effective in completing the tasks, um, both quickly and and um, doing it well. And what they really want to do and what they think will be the most effective strategy is to line up the tasks such that the hardest one is at the end. <laughs> and so they want to start with the easiest one and work their way up to the hardest, which, you know, makes a lot of sense from um, lots of different psychology literatures. It's consistent with procrastination. It also kind of fits with learning. Um, but we actually ran experiments where we um, actually had people order different daily tasks that varied on difficult level in different ways and complete them um, and then report their experiences. And so as long as they know how to do the task, so it's different if they don't know how to do it. So in that case, uh, learning does, you know, prevail and they should go from the easiest to the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's, it's the type of task that you kind of know how to do, like one of the ones we looked at in the paper was um, job applications, where there's a whole bunch of little tasks that you might need to do, such as, you know, filling out a form and then some of them are harder, like, you know, editing your resume and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and so in those types of tasks, what we found was that if you actually start with the hardest task and work your way down to the easiest, um, p- people found that by the end that they were feeling much more efficacious um, and that they were moving a lot faster. And the reason being is that, you know, as you can imagine, they're building momentum, essentially. So with every task that they're completing, checking off their to-do list, um, they uh, feel a sense of like efficacy and momentum and and also that relief that like the harder task is now behind Mm -hmm. you. And so the easier ones are upcoming. Um, And so that actually made people feel more efficacious in a way that they didn't predict at all. Um, And part of the kind of psychology of what's going on there is that people aren't that good at simulating the process. (laughs) What it seems to be doing is they kind of think about the first task and then they sort of stop after that. So if they're thinking about starting with the hard one, they're like, oh, that's going to be terrible. You know, they're Mm -hmm. not sort of thinking that by the time they get to the last one, it's going to be great. Like feel how much momentum you're going to have experienced by that point. And they're not really simulating through it the whole way. And instead, they're thinking, oh, well, if I start with the first one, that'll feel good. And they're not thinking about having to get all the way up to the last one. So if we basically nudge them enough that they simulate through the entire process, like what will the beginning be like? What will the middle of that be like? What will the end of it be like, which they don't normally get to kind of on their own, then they can be more accurate. And we just have to kind of nudge them to do that. Yeah, I, I kind of see it almost like a like a slide, like going down a slide, you know, like at the start, at the top, it's almost like it's hard to um, like you need to get on first on the slide and then you need to like and at the start of the slide, it's kind of slow, but then it gets faster and faster. So your momentum builds up after you've done um, the hard task. So I would like to ask, why do we think that accomplishing the smaller tasks would be more productive than accomplishing the bigger task first? Like what's the catch? Yeah, I love that um, slide analogy. We actually use this um, 
aphorism to start the paper that's been attributed to Mark Twain, although we couldn't quite find verification of that. But it's this this saying that if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's, mm. if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. And so that's kind of the the strategy we're, we're testing out, which is like the eat the frog first strategy. Do you do it first or mm. do you do it at the end? Um, and so the reason why I think people want to start with the easiest task, I think, you know, there actually are multiple reasons for it. Um, so what we find in, in our studies that we tested that I mentioned briefly was that um, basically people don't, aren't good at simulating entire sequences. Um, in fact, um, a, a famous psychologist over at Harvard, Dan Gilbert, he put this in such a poetic way that people's mental simulations are mere cardboard cutouts of reality. And we kind of find this over and over again. I actually have some other work where we have people predicting the trajectory of enjoyment that they feel over the course of a long conversation. And they basically get the, com- the trajectory wrong. In fact, they systematically tend to underestimate um, how enjoyable to be over time, thinking that, you know, enjoyment will decrease over the course of a conversation when in fact it remains stable or actually increases. Um, and so that's another another kind of case where people's simulation, they're not kind of simulating the full experience. They're just kind of simulating the very beginning of it um, because it's it's effortful and difficult to predict. And it's sort of not people's natural inclination to really think through the entire experience. They tend to just kind of start in the beginning. I also think that in addition to that, in, in the case of um, completing tasks, um, procrastination is a part of it as well. <laughs> so I think people, you know, anticipate how bad it'll feel um, to have to, or how, you know, effortful and painful might feel to complete that more yeah. difficult task. And they, they just want to delay that as long as they can. And that kind of gets into a whole nother literature where, you know, the, the future is um, not as, you know, there's more risk. It's not as clear what's going to happen. It's more ambiguous. The, the present, you know, is definitely going to happen. And so putting off things that seem negative into the future sometimes seems like a wise choice because that might never happen. The future might never happen. <laughs> mm. um, and so people show this tendency across other kind of domains as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it possible to like rebuild our in- intuition to think that completing the hardest tasks first would lead to a more productive life rather than doing these smaller tasks first? Um, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting question that I don't know that research has um, investigated that much. Part of that's a question about learning, you know, so mm. if people were to, you know, read this paper or read some of their other kind of motivational books, like Daniel Pink has a book that kind of makes this point as well. You want to eat the frog, yeah. eat the frog first. In fact, I think there's a management book that's actually titled eat the frog first. Mm. Um, and they, you know, basically warn against procrastination and they, they have kind of similar, um, you know, they don't have the exact same finding, but kind of a similar strategy there of start with the hardest task. And so if people were to practice doing that um, for a while, would they learn that that actually does make them feel more efficacious overall? Um, and would they adjust or update or would they just continue to procrastinate? I don't really know the answer to that question. Uh, I think it's a really interesting one to investigate. We should probably do that in our next paper. <laughs> we could like yeah. assign people to do it in different ways. I think in general, it, people, if they can um, be more careful in the way that they simulate across trajectories and just have that knowledge that um, it's not human nature to think through the full trajectory. And so if you really force yourself, like you nudge yourself, hey, what about the end of that experience? What's that going Mm -hmm. to be like? 
Um, I think that could just be sort of a wise thing for people to do in their daily lives because they're thinking more about the beginning of experiences than they are about the end of experiences, um, yeah. which kind of leads them to to have these sort of systematic errors that they make. Yeah. And also in your research paper, um, you mentioned that to build efficacy, people should start uh, with their hardest tasks, even though doing so may violate their intuition. Do you think that burnout can come into play when always doing the hardest tasks first, or maybe even anxiety of starting the hardest task all the time? That, um, that's a good point. Yeah. So I think there are some boundary conditions to the effect that we identified in the paper. And so one would be if you're a complete novice and you just, so that's the learning kind of boundary condition. And you mm. really just can't complete the most difficult task until you've done some of the easier tasks to kind of learn, um, then yes, you would want to kind of start with the earlier ones. The difficult one could end up, you know, you could end up just not even be able to get through it because you just don't know enough. You don't have the knowledge. Um, and then you never get to the easier tasks. So that would be kind of a, a worst case scenario. And then I think you're right that another kind of boundary that we talk about in the paper is, um, if the div- most difficult task is something that, you know, even if you do know you're not a novice, you're an expert, but it's going to be something that's so like emotionally painful or, you know, traumatizing that it could kind of create burnout and just sort of stop the process entirely. Mm. Right. So it has to be a task that you could actually do. So this is more like kind of going back to the job application context, like, okay, I know I have to update my resume, but that's going to take a little longer. It's a little more difficult, right? I know I can do it. It's not going to burn me out, but it's just, you know, when do I do it kind of within the set of tasks that I have? Um, and so in those situations, we think, okay, do it first. But I think you're right that if, if you don't know anything about the task and you need to learn or the worst, the most difficult part of it is just going to create so much emotional anxiety or something, then, then I think this could, um, we wouldn't really recommend doing it in that order. Mm, yeah. Difficult, um, easy. We, we might recommend the opposite actually. Yeah. Yeah. And would you say, cause like what I, me and my friend like to do it as well when it comes to. Um, ordering our tasks, we'd like to alternate between the hardest and the smallest tasks to improve our productivity mm-hmm. as it maintains our task fatigue and also keeps up the novelty in doing the task, therefore motivating us um, as novelty increases dopamine production in our brains. Uh, do you think this is a good idea? That's so interesting. Yeah, so we really looked at pretty simple trajectories. There's kind of like some some hard tasks, some some medium tasks, and then some easy tasks. But it'd be interesting to look at this with a like a longer trajectory of like many many tasks that kind of vary in different levels and different ways. Um, and that novelty question is is interesting as well. Um, this also is like this is done in one particular time stretch. Right. So I'm going to sit down for an hour or so. I'm going to do all these things. Whereas you, you, your example brings to mind the fact that sometimes people are doing tasks, but they're doing one thing a day for many weeks. Right. So it's kind of split out in time. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a bit different as well. Um, Yeah. I think that in terms of what your intuition is, um, uh, having the novelty piece, keeping you engaged. I think that's a good idea. I don't have any evidence that I can think of that sort of the, the particular sequencing of hard to easy, hard to easy, um, Mm. has been shown as being particularly good. There's nothing I can think of on that, but it's definitely interesting proposition. I'd love to test it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, um, on a previous interview, which uh, was on episode four on the podcast called Finding Happiness in Life. 
And Sandra mentioned that um, success is mostly defined by relationships and that friends and relationships are really important and actually correlate with reaching your goals and dreams. So I would like to delve into the topic of relationships now and ask you, how do we build up such relationships and avoid ones that prevent us from reaching our goals? Yeah, that's. I think that's a um, a big question. Um, the paper that I mentioned a bit earlier is relevant here in terms of um, conversation and started. This is starting conversation with a person that you know you haven't spoken to before, an acquaintance. Um, and so, basically, what we find there is that people seem not to understand the how the very beginning of a relationship starts. And so, there's all these findings that that suggest that. Um, the longer that you engage with someone um, and, and really get to know them, the deeper the relationship is going to get, the more intimate it'll be, the more you'll actually have to talk about. So it, it essentially builds. Um, it's an experience that builds and it's more fun to have to talk with someone with whom um, you have greater intimacy. Um, and, and yet people actually are predicting the opposite. We find that they think that the longer they're going to talk with someone, the more bored they're going to get, the more they're going to run out mm. of things to say. And conversation is fascinating because it can branch in a million directions, right? So it's, yeah. you know, it's hard to actually simulate all the different things that can happen in a conversation. There's so many different ways and you don't know the other person, at least in the context we're looking at, these are, you know, new relationships. And so you have no idea like what they're going to bring into the conversation. Um, uh, but so people sort of tend to systematically think that they're just going to run out of things to say or their counterpart will run out of things to say um, when, in fact, they can maintain a lot longer than they think they can. And we find that this kind of translates to basically people ending conversations earlier than would be good for their own enjoyment. Right now, there's lots of reasons why people end a conversation at a particular time. There's this um, great paper that just came out in um, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, with Adam Mastrioni as the lead author. And there, they actually find that conversations almost never end when both parties want them to end, <laughs> mm. which really speaks to like the complex dynamics of ending a conversation because, you know, essentially, um, uh, in the in the experiments that they run there, um, about a third of the conversations people wished had gone longer, and then like almost two thirds of them they wished you know had gone shorter or something. And so what happens is basically people end conversations when they think the other party wants them to end. They're being polite, or you know, and then they misread the other party, and so then mm. that's not what the other party actually wanted. So there's actually all these kind of interesting game theoretic dynamics to the whole idea of ending conversations. But um, what we found, yeah, in these studies is that basically people kind of are are prioritizing like breadth, like they'd rather talk to like many people or have shorter conversations over depth, like just talking mm -hmm. to one person for a longer period of time, partially because of these fears that they have that they're just going to run out of things to say. Um, and I think that's important in terms of the broader question you asked for how people form relationships, because what it suggests is that um, people might, you know, in, in ending these conversations earlier, it might take them longer to form relationships or it happens over a longer period of time because they're kind of afraid to continue the conversation in the moment. Yeah. And moving on to like the, almost like the technological side of relationships, you also did some research on how differences between online and offline interactions influence our social outcomes. And 
in psychology, it's also quite complicated when it comes to social networking and things we post. And usually most people post the best sides of themselves uh, and to show off to other individuals on what they've done or they're basically their best side. And I also wanted, so I wanted to ask you, are our physical and virtual interactions similar or does each one show something different about us? interesting question. Yeah, we so I have a whole line of work on the medium by which people communicate and how that influences the inferences that they make about each other and the, the outcomes of that communication, particularly in domains where people have conflict. So um, where there's disagreement, and then that might lead to things like dehumanization, where they think of each other as being less overall competent and thoughtful, um, and how that affects the conflict resolution. And basically, the findings in that line of work have been that um, people often prefer to be in the written medium. Um, that mm. might be social media or might be email. It's as you can imagine, particularly if you think you're going to have disagreement with someone, it creates some space. It allows people to feel comfortable with the content that they're generating because they can, you know, proofread it and edit it and really script themselves very, very carefully. But what they fail to anticipate is that, um, thinking about how the other person is going to really consume their message. And it turns out that when people read text, they're not always reading it in the way that the, the communicator meant for it to be read. So they might not put the mm. same kind of intonation into the words. And this is particularly problematic when they disagree with the person because you're they're inclined to be kind of unforgiving when they read what that person mm. has to say. Um and in fact, if they can hear it, the communicator speaking themselves, what they meant to say, if, if the other person hears it, they tend to have a much more positive impression of that person. It's more, it's a humanizing medium to hear it. Mm. Um, it's particularly what we found is these paralinguistic cues in the person's voice, which are things like the pace of their speech and their intonation. Um, if there's variance in those cues, that is those things are giving signals to the other person that the communicator is having these online thoughts and feelings, their emotions are being conveyed in a way that's like much more vivid than if the mm. other person were just to kind of read the same words. We've even kept the words exactly the same in our experiments. Um, and so hearing them just leads to this, this greater humanization. It, it also having synchronicity in the conversation. So the fact, for example, that, you know, you and I are going back and forth in this conversation, you can ask questions and I can follow up. That really improves understanding uh, as opposed to a more asynchronous medium like email where just the follow up would take much, much longer. Mm -hmm. um, we find, you know, over and over again that email in particular is a medium that really promotes misunderstanding. Um, mm. It's not humanizing. So, you know, I, I certainly understand that it has some of its benefits, like it, there are benefits to it. But it, in terms of like being humanizing, reducing conflict, promoting understanding, it's really just not the ideal medium for that. Although people seem to like it a lot. They really want to go with it um, mm -hmm. or things like text messaging. Um, so we've been doing like a lot of exploration of that. One other thing I guess I'll mention there that people find surprising is that, um, being able to see the other person, particularly if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. 
So mm. it's really more about the way the content is being conveyed. Is it through the person's voice or is it through text? Um, and mm. so it's really the voice in particular that appears to be humanizing in the experiments that we've run. Yeah. And it kind of relates to like a quote that I know it's called. Um, and it says, uh, remember that people will always judge you by your actions and not by your intentions. Mm. And it's almost like, I feel like, I don't know if this is right. And I wouldn't, I want to ask you this, but it's basically, I think that on social media, we kind of know this analogy and we kind of show our actions and maybe not, um, we show our like true actions and true intentions on social media and like we show our good side of it. And in real life, people like, it's almost like the same, like on social media and in real life, people kind of misjudges by only our actions because of what only what they see and not our true intentions. So is there a way that we could communicate our intentions as well as our actions? That's such a great question. I love that quote too. Um, yeah, this reminds me, I'll just share some older experiments. Uh, Justin Kruger and Nick Epley were involved in running these experiments and they mm. looked at um, communicators' predictions about how they would be perceived, how their message would be perceived where, as compared to the um, observer's actual perceptions. And they looked at um, complex intentions that people have. And in particular, they were looking at um, sarcasm and humor. And so mm. trying to be sarcastic that's your intention right so you say something it's it's meant to be sarcastic or it's meant to be funny um and then seeing if the other person picks up on that intention and um what they find is that um there's just a main effect where communicators think that the other person will obviously know that they're being sarcastic or humorous more so than the observers actually do. The observers are, don't always pick up on whether or not they're, they're trying to be sarcastic or humorous. Mm. Um, but it was really, again, they did it across these different communication modalities and they find that that effect is particularly exacerbated over text. So it was particularly there that um, the observers were only accurate about half the time at actually uh, figuring out whether the person was being sarcastic or humorous, the communicators expected them to be right, like about 70% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the phone, um, the observers are much more accurate, but still the communicators expect them to be better, but they're, they're not quite as good as the communicators expect, but they are more um, accurate. And so I think that just um, helps to show that, you know, your intention as the communicator seems so obvious, right? It's, it's, you know, what your intention is, whether you have yeah. good intention, whether you're being sarcastic and so on. Um, and so it seems just so clear to you, but the person on the receiving end of that might not, it's just not as clear to them. They just don't necessarily know what your intention was. Um, and that's particularly true when they, when they, um, when the medium lacks richness, um, when it lacks these extra cues and they just have the words. Um, and so I really encourage people to be really cognizant about the way in which they're using the different communication modalities, right? So, you know, perhaps if you want to just um, kind of make a really simple point and get it down in writing, then, you know, email is the way to go. But if you're trying to explain something complex where your intentions mm. might not be fully understood or that you have sort of complex feelings about it, then, um, you know, be, be cognizant that the text-based mm -hmm. medium is, is not going to be the right way to go or really try to bring in extra cues into that medium to try to make your intentions clearer. So one thing we're kind of playing around with now is 
whether there are um, things we can input into the text medium that will help to convey intentions and just generally be humanizing um, in these types of, of interactions. Um, emojis are, you know, one thing that probably come to mind, right? So mm. if I'm if I'm trying to be sarcastic, I might put like a funny emoji kind of at the end, like the winky face or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that I think so that can help a little bit. So there is some research on that. Um, but I, I I still think that even there, the communicators are are overconfident in terms of how clear their message is. Mm. Um, so there's still a lot to be explored there. Yeah. And do you think that knowing each other's intentions, um, I guess, better and more frequently um, sort of is the key to building relationships? Hmm. Um, I, I think it is important, um, particularly when you're engaging across a line of a divide, whether it's, you know, someone from a different group, maybe they're a different, you know, ethnicity or, or race than you, um, or maybe they are, have different opinions than you on something. So you have different political ideologies. I think that knowing the other person's intention or making your intention very clear um, can be helpful, uh, particularly because there's been some work that suggests that across those lines of difference, um, people are, are sometimes inclined to believe the worst, um, whereas people's actual intentions might not have been that, you know, that bad. They might actually have mm. good intentions. And so, so making that clear, I think, is, is a really good idea. I don't know if I'd say it's like the key to relationship formation, but I do think it's an important ingredient. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. And then in your opinion, what is the key to building relationships? Hmm. Well, I don't know that we have the answer that one thing. Well, one thing I will mention, it's a good question is, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so we have a project where we look at, um, relation formation across lots of different types of relationships. So we're looking at satisfaction in particular, like what makes people feel happy in a relationship. And we look mm. at it with, you know, relationships with your parents, your children, your romantic partners, um, even, you know, service providers, your colleagues, your acquaintances. And what we find over and over again is that um, it's the extent to which people feel um, known and supported. So there's a whole literature on like responsiveness. Like um, if you have a responsive partner, that's someone that is listening to you, understanding you and valuing you. Um, so Harry Reese has, you know, built his entire career around studying relationships and he's come up with this, this theory of responsiveness. Um, mm. And so, and so what we are finding in, in the paper I just mentioned is that um, if you pit the extent to which you feel sort of known and supported compared to how much you perceive that you know or support the other person, um, it's really more of the, the extent to which you feel sort of known and supported that is co highly correlated with relationship satisfaction. Um, and that's true for all of the relationships in which they are tend to be characterized more by receiving support. So those are things like relationships with their parents and your romantic partners. Most relationships are actually like that. So we have, we have data on this. And so most relationships, even if people won't always explicitly admit it, the, the data suggests that generally like most relationships people have are more about 
characterized by sort of people wanting to receive good support. However, what's cool about this is that there are some relationships that are not characterized by that. The most salient example of which is a relationship with your child. Um, so there, it is not about receiving support. It is about providing support, right? Yeah. And so all, and so there actually the, the effect flips. And so in that mm. relationship and your relationship with, with a dependent, also we see this for relationships with, um, mentees, um, you know, subordinates in the workplace to, to a lesser extent, but still there. Um, in those types of relationships, instead, what makes people happy is feeling like they know the other person and they support the other person. Um, it's mm. not how much they feel known or supported. Mm. Yeah. And um, you also did some research about power and decision making and relating that to AI as well. So since I'm interested personally about AI and the future, could you delve in on how AI might affect our experience of power and therefore our decision making? Um, yes. Yeah. So we um, basically think about kind of two primary mechanisms in that paper. So the extent to which um, people are, are oriented towards their goals and their like a social role expectations in an interaction. And what we think about there in terms of how it intersects with AI is that, you know, there are certain forms of AI that can feel like low power to a human, like an, a digital assistant or virtual assistant. So maybe mm -hmm. Siri sort of feels that way. And so there, you know, people might actually feel, um, powerful. Um, and yet there's other forms of AI that eventually might end up feeling threatening to, to people um, in terms of, you know, a lot of it depends on like the role that that AI kind of plays in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So on the threat side, one area that's been looked at quite a bit is in um, like hiring decisions. So a lot of companies are relying on, on artificial intelligence to help them, um, aid them a lot in making decisions about hiring, also firing and promotion, other things, right? So they put in a bunch of data into an algorithm and then they kind of get some answers out of it. And this is, you know, very threatening to people. They feel very, very low power in these, these kind of contexts. Um, and that it also just feels unfair because sort of it's missing the kind of key kind of human elements. Um, and I think that this, this dynamic of like how kind of power plays into the human AI interactions is something that's, you know, we're just going to continue to grapple with it more and more as it becomes more and more common that people are relying on AI to help the decision-making process. Um, mm. And so, you know, I'm thinking about a future where actually most of our decisions are really not being made by us. They're all just kind of being fed out from these, by these algorithms. And mm. we're talking very consequential decisions. You're like parole decisions, um, you know, wh whether or not the U.S. is going to war or whatever. Like there's, you know, you can imagine a lot of these huge mm. decisions might end up being largely driven by, by algorithms in the future. Um, and so kind of thinking through the different power dynamics there and who ends up being in charge of the algorithms. Um, you know, in some ways we kind of play around with this idea in the paper that you could almost trace it back to the, the programmers, right? It's like who ends up being in power when AI is making all the decisions? Mm -hmm. Like, well, whoever is creating the algorithms in the first place actually have a lot of power um, in a way that we, we need to think through and be really cognizant about. There's a big paper that came out recently in Science um, Sendel Mole Nathan was one of the lead authors um, mm. looking at bias, uh, algorithmic bias, race bias in the healthcare system and um, showing that the way that some of uh, healthcare institutions have their algorithms set up is that it was disadvantaging black people systematically. Um, 
which, and it just had, you know, huge repercussions. Um, and, you know, not, this wasn't intentional. This was sort of inadvertent in the way that these algorithms were built, but we need to be so cognizant of it because the ramifications are so huge. So it's like very interesting to kind of think through some of these, some of these issues. Yeah. And just relating to that, um, aspect of, um, AI making decisions for us, Mm -hmm. um, Humans have evolved with big brains in general because it has made us better adapted for the environment. However, um, it may not be true as environmental evolution might have driven us to a certain point, but there was a need for social life and it is needed for us to outcompete our friends and peers to act that actually supercharged our evolution of our brains. And that is the point that um, a book called The Elephant in the Brain makes. And one of the things I wanted to ask is basically, do you think it in the future that AI would actually improve our decision-making skills in a way that AI serves us answers to simple decisions, but we start to think about only the big decisions that we got to make? And do, do you think this kind of supercharges it? Hmm. As we're like thinking of, you know, bigger things rather than smaller things that... right. Right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. When you were talking about that book, it made me think about Dunbar's social brain hypothesis that, you know, one aspect of the human brain, that it's the neocortex to medulla ratio they look at that is, you know, particularly impressive in the human species compared to other animal species. It's been suggested Mm -hmm. that that developed particularly because humans have so much sort of social coordination um, that they have to do. And that creates this huge cognitive load um, that they have to handle. So it's really, that's, those are the, we have the social brain compared to other, other species. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's a great question. And um, all of your questions have been really good. I'll just <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know what exactly, you know, the, the future holds here. So I'm actually the um, co-founder of an institute called the Psychology of Technology Institute. And mm. the whole yeah. mission and purpose of this institute is to um, try to advance um, and amplify research related to the psychology of technology. And the problem that we see is that basically new technologies are being introduced into society at this, you know, actually exponentially growing rate. Mm -hmm. It's kind of unbelievable how quickly it's, you know, human mind cannot really even comprehend exponential growth. So Mm. it's, it's wild how, how, how much our technology is advancing. Um, and we just aren't really keeping up in terms of what we know about it. And so you can look at, you know, technologies that have been introduced, like let's say Facebook as an example. And then when the research started coming out about what the kind of consequences were psychologically and, and more broadly societally, um, what's, what Facebook was doing. And by the time sort of the research came out about some of the potential, you know, costs, some downsides to Facebook use, mm. things like addiction, um, uh, you know, bullying that teenagers were experiencing on the platform and so on. Um, that wasn't until the platform was like very well integrated into society to a point that nobody's going to sort of give it up. Um, and so I, one of the big missions that we just have to close that gap between when the technology is introduced and when we know about what it's going to do to the human mm. psyche. <laughs> um, and that closing that gap 
requires better research faster. And that's so important. Um, and so I think this kind of gets back to your broader question of, you know, how will the human brain kind of integrate with algorithms? So will it be that we're relying on these for some support and ultimately that kind of frees us up to make higher level decisions? Um, or will it be, you know, or, are, or is the management of these different algorithms, is that going to end up creating a lot of load on us in a way that we're not very good at kind of um, speculating or forecasting about that could be dangerous, mm. right? And so if, you know, one person builds this little algorithm to deal with one thing and then it starts being adapted widely across many different companies and it turns out there's some sort of glitch, you know, to what extent are we going to be occupied with like trying to solve these problems in the future and what's that what is that going to look like and i mean a lot of that just i think it's kind of an open question right now so mm. you know we've actually been conducting like wider scale surveys about whether people feel optimistic or pessimistic about technology in the future they're very divided right so you've got mm. sort of the utopian like the optimists are like yes technology is like going to solve all of our problems but then you've got like a big chunk of people that are dystopian like the you know the center for humane tech and tristan harris if you watch the social dilemma on netflix you yeah. know there's that set of people that are like no technology is like destroying us it's destroying our way of life it's problematic in all these different ways mm. um, and then of course there are you know people kind of in the middle um but what we think with the institute is that what needs to happen is that there needs to be just more informed conversation about it and that there needs to be better research and needs to be causal research, right? That's, that's carefully done. That's causal. So that people really know what the consequences of these different technologies are. And that hopefully would, you know, guide us in terms of the way that we design them and use them um, to, to have this future. That's, that's going to be beneficial and better than, than the one we're living in, as opposed to the potential, mm -hmm. you know, negative outcomes that we could, that we could have from new technologies. Um, so that was a very long way of saying that I didn't know the answer to your question at all, but I'm sort of pitching that it's so important that we, we do more research and we amplify the research on this so that we can know the answer to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now just to wrap this episode up, I would like to ask you one last question. And like I always do at the end of each episode, I relate it back to the topic that we talk about today um, uh, to a favorite quote of mine. And I would like to know your opinion on this quote. And this quote links back to the topic we talked about earlier, um, which was productivity and efficacy. So the quote goes, most people overestimate what they can get done in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. This famous quote, which is commonly attributed to Bill Gates, um, holds true over shorter time spans as well. We tend to overestimate what we can done, what we can get done in a day, but also underestimate what we can get, what we can accomplish in a year. So, what is your opinion on this quote, and how does it apply to your life and the work that you do? Mm, I think it beautifully kind of wraps up the entire conversation because it, it does go back to the very beginning of what we were discussing. I think that's completely consistent with the idea that people are simulating the beginning of sequences more than the end, right? So mm. if they're thinking about all the things that they might be able to do in a year, but they're, it's harder to continue to think, what about year two, year three, year four, year five, all the way up to 10, right? So that like is such a, a large span of time that people aren't kind of simulating completely through that. Um, and instead they're kind of overestimating what happens in the shorter time span, but underestimating what happens in the longer time span. So it's totally consistent with that psychology, I think. Mm -hmm. um, 
in terms of um, my work, yeah, I think that across lots of domains, one thing I've been showing and studying is that people, you know, have these mispredictions and misperceptions about the way that um, interactions in particular, you know, are going to go. And so I think that, you know, if people are more cognizant about um, really thinking through an entire interaction or an entire simulation. And, you know, mm. part of this can be mapping, right? So they're actually like writing down what they think will happen at each step. Um, that will, you know, help to improve their accuracy. Although I'm sure that there's it's just human nature to kind of stop at the beginning and not to continue. So it's something mm. that I think will, you know, continue to sort of plague us. Um but yeah, the, the challenge of simulation is just like a very interesting area for future research and the, the psychology around simulation. Yeah. So again, thank you so much, Juliana, for coming onto the show. You're very welcome. It was great to chat with you. Thank you.